I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 5th, 2012. Coming up, we talk with a scientist at the Colorado School of Mines about a system for saving potable water for drinking, not for flushing toilets. And we'll talk with the Rocky Mountain Institute's Ben Holland about electric vehicles. Electric vehicles have the potential to change the way we move our cars, but we need to think about infrastructure. We begin with a recent look at some recent news in science. Here's Susan Moran. The size of sea ice has been changing in recent years. In the Bering Sea, for instance, the decline of sea ice is causing marine species, from zooplankton to birds all the way up to whales, to shift where they eat, have babies, and make their homes. Several new studies document patterns of change in Alaskan waters that host some of the most lucrative commercial fisheries in the country. More than half of the seafood Americans eat from U.S. waters is caught in Alaska. So understanding what role natural and human influence variations in temperature, nutrients, sea ice, and other factors play in the ecosystem will help scientists better predict the impacts of climate in the region. Scientists from NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as well as the University of Washington and elsewhere, spent six years studying processes that influence the marine ecosystem of the eastern Bering Sea. They projected that warming of southern shelf waters will limit the distribution of Arctic species, such as snow crab, and that whales will shift in abundance and distribution as their food source moves. The studies also found that the historical records suggest that the most important climate feature over the next few decades will be large random variability. That's despite the fact that modest warming due to climate change is expected over the long term in the North Pacific and the southeastern Bering Sea. The papers were published last week in the special issue of journal Deep Sea Research 2. What do you do when you have some extra stuff lying around the house? Have a yard sale? Put it on Craigslist? Well, if you're the National Reconnaissance Office, you call up NASA. That is if the extra stuff is a couple of satellites. And we're not talking about garden variety satellites here, but two space telescopes the size of Hubble with 94-inch mirrors, as was reported today in the New York Times. The spooks at the National Reconnaissance Office built them to spy on planet Earth, but by happenstance, NASA figures they are just about perfect to study dark energy in deep space. NASA hopes to have funds to launch at least one of them in 2020. Scientists with the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory near Crested Butte are studying how climate change is altering how hummingbirds synchronize their seasonal appearance with the blooming of flowers they feed off of. The broad-tailed hummingbird migrates from Central America to its springtime greeting grounds in the western U.S. each year. In Colorado's Rocky Mountains, in the northern part of their breeding ground, these tiny birds get the nourishment they need to breed and nest from early bloomers, such as the glacier lily and the dwarf larkspur. But, as Daniel Inouye, a biologist from the University of Maryland, and his colleagues have discovered, the birds and the flowers are behaving differently to warming climate. The hummingbirds are coming earlier every year, especially over the past decade, but the flowers are blooming even earlier. And I think one of the common problems we're starting to see uh, as a consequence of climate change is that many different species are changing the timing of their seasonal events, of their phenology, whether it's 
migration by the birds or flowering by the plants, but they're not all changing at the same rate. So even if they're responding to the same cue, which might be air temperature, which might be snow melt, which might be um, growing degree days, uh, they, unless they all respond at exactly the same rate, uh, then the historical synchrony between species is going to be disrupted. So according to Inouye, there may come a time when the glacier lilies have bloomed and gone before the hummingbirds arrive. Some species, like the broad-tailed hummingbirds, may not be able to extend their range northward as average temperatures warm. The paper was published in the most recent issue of Ecology. Thanks to Jim Pullen for that story. Now that you've enjoyed yesterday's full moon, today you can check out Venus passing in front of the sun from 4 to 8 p.m. Don't miss it, because the Venus transit won't happen again for more than 100 years. CU Boulder's Fisk Planetarium will host several activities during the transit from 3.30 to 8. The theater opens its doors at 3.30 for a live broadcast from CU's Summer Bush Observatory, which is next to Fisk. Several scientists from CU and Ball Aerospace will give talks starting at 4.45 p.m. For more information, go to Fisk, that's F-I-S-K-E, dot Colorado, dot E-D-U. Listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. Here in the front rain, the last three months have been the driest on record. Usually, we get about eight inches of rain from this time period. This year, it's more like three. As for where to get enough water when supplies are scarce, a scientist at the Colorado School of Mines is leading a plan to build city water systems so that we save drinkable water for, well, drinking. And so we use less clean water for flushing toilets, washing laundry, and watering lawns. For a sketch of the plan, here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender talking with York Dravis. My name is York Dravis. I'm a professor at the Colorado School of Mines in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. And you're interested in water and how to make the most of it. That's true. Yes, my interest is in especially portable reuse. And that means being able to drink it. Potentially, yes. That's the idea. Why is that a problem right now? Utilities or municipalities have to consider if they run out of water. Meaning that even though we have water right now, the tap may run dry for drinkable water. That's true. And if you consider the population growth, um, by 2030, for example, 87% of the U.S. population are estimated to live in urban centers. And most of these people live in areas that are already water scarce today. They might not have enough water to go around, and they want to look for alternative supplies. Now, York Drevis, you have just completed a study that looks at this issue. It wasn't just me. It was actually a group of 14 individuals that were invited by the National Research Council and National Academies to develop a study to advise the U.S. government in the option of uh, using water reuse as a potential to expand the nation's future water supply. Now, when you say water reuse, we're reusing water all the time, even now. Those of us who live very close to the mountains and get our water from the snow, we get kind of first-use water. But as you go down the river, everybody's reusing everybody else's water. That's very true, but it's not always acknowledged. De facto reuse is happening all over. 
the wastewater is discharged upstream of a drinking water intake and downstream communities are partially reusing this wastewater. But if it's not acknowledged, it might pose a certain risk. What this study lays out is essentially if principles that can help in mitigating this risk and potentially even plan for it. So intentionally, you reuse this water for non-potable and potable purposes. We just heard you say something that's a little different from how we do it, say, in Boulder, where if we want to water our lawns, we use the same water that we use coming out of our taps in most cases. We use the same water that we would drink to water our lawns. That's true, but it comes at a cost. So we really need to consider whether we need drinking water quality to water our lawns or even for cooling water purposes and other purposes. Now, if a person walks around Boulder, they can walk past places where already non-potable water is being used for grass and trees Mm -hmm. by the University of Colorado's research park over at Colorado Boulevard. There are signs saying, don't drink the sprinkler water. If you go to the wastewater treatment plant where all of the sewage is processed, their lawns are incredibly green. And there too it says, don't drink this sprinkler water because it's kind of only halfway clean. It's not made for drinking. That's true. In most cases, as we currently practice reuse, it's really for non-potable purposes. So we don't uh, intentionally drink this water. In the future, and in some cases already ongoing in the country, we're actually treating this water to much better quality, sometimes even better than surface water. It doesn't pose a risk to even drink it. York Drevis, I hear you saying that even non-potable water needs to get cleaned up. Well, it depends on the purpose. If you put it on the lawn or you use it for cooling water, then it just needs to meet certain requirements. It doesn't need to be as clean as drinking water. How is this plan new and different from what we're thinking about so far and how to deal with water? As we go into the future, some of the communities are running out of their current options because we essentially have utilized all the fresh water that is available for a given city. And as we go into the future, we might want to look at brackish groundwater use or we want to look at other resources. And wastewater is a local resource that is drought-proof and available and generated every day. So that is attractive, and we do invest and spend quite a bit of money already in treating this water to meet discharge standards to a river, for example. Can you give an example of a city where you think they are just ready for this to happen? We don't have to go very far, actually. Definitely Denver and the entire Front Range is, is a prime example where water reuse can be expanded. Well, how does a city do this? How can a city switch from its standard way of using water to dividing it up into drinkable and non-drinkable. I'm picturing a lot of new pipes. That's true, and that's a current practice. Uh, Essentially, when you entertain using this water for lawn irrigation or golf course irrigation, park irrigation, then you usually need a dedicated system. We call this a purple pipe system. So it has a dedicated color system that people can recognize that being reclaimed water. When we come to uh, the idea of drinking water augmentation, then we would utilize the same distribution system we have today. So you would install an advanced treatment plant that provides enough uh, treatment barriers, and a portion of that drinking water then would come from that uh, other source, meaning wastewater. Right now, our drinking water does come to some extent from wastewater. Even in Boulder and Denver, which are close to the mountains, we have our water go through some filters and then it's put into a special plant that treats the water for drinking. 
that part sounds like it's already here. That's true, but is as this portion gets bigger, the portion of wastewater in your raw water supply, you need to really have better treatment processes in place and uh, barriers in place that can deal with that risk associated with wastewater. If you think of wastewater, obviously nobody would drink it. Well, why, that, why is that the case? Well, we know that there are pathogens in the water, there are chemicals in the water we don't want to drink. We need drinking water treatment processes that can deal with these. And as we look at a pristine supply, we have it in Boulder or we have it in other places in the Front Range, the degree of wastewater is rather small. So as you go to other locations or as we might go into the future where that degree of wastewater impact is larger, then we need to have a better mitigation strategies in place. Well, right now, when we make our own waste, our own sewage, we're required to clean it up before we discharge it back into the streams. So we have a sewage treatment plant, which we call the wastewater treatment plant. Mm -hmm. And then we have the water purification plant, which is a whole other place. That's correct. So rather than uh, taking this sewage water and treating it to meet discharge standard to the river, we would actually take that water and think about other purposes rather than uh, discharging it back into the river. And that might be stream flow augmentation, fountains could be cooling water, could be toilet flushing in buildings, or could be portable supply. So rather than wasting this water and let it, let it go and leave a region, we want to retain it in that region and re reuse it again. He says the easiest way for a community to start using more non-potable water is to build new subdivisions with a separate line of purple pipes for the non-potable water. For an extended version of the article, check our website, howonearthradio.org. And thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. We cover electric vehicle technology a lot on How on Earth, but equally important to the vehicles themselves are the infrastructure required to make it work and the government policy policies to incentivize their use. Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, with offices in Boulder and Snowmass, is an organization that has thought deeply about these issues. With us in the studio is Ben Holland, manager of the Project Get Ready. Ben, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks for having me, Tom. So, Ben, at RMI, you guys look at policies to advance electric vehicles, but, but first let's address the question of why electric vehicles? Why would a consumer want an EV over a gas car, and, and why should governments have policies to encourage them? Well, at Rocky Mountain Institute, we're principally concerned right now with identifying opportunities for reducing uh, the U.S.'s dependence on oil and coal. And we think that, you know, if adopted at scale, electric vehicles can uh, really produce some positive effects in the way of uh, independence from uh, foreign oil and uh, reducing air quality and environmental impacts associated with vehicles. Okay, and, uh, and carbon footprint as well? Yes, um, there's been a lot of talk about that as well, and uh, it, it really depends on where you're plugging these cars in, uh, where in the country, what is the, the uh, generation mix in your area, and typically across the board, they're better than your traditional uh, internal combustion engine. Okay, and what about at the consumer level? Why would why would I choose an EV over over a gas car? Well, I think I think right now what you're seeing are people that people purchasing these vehicles really care about the environmental uh, benefits of electric vehicles, no tailpipe emissions in many cases, 
and uh, not having to rely on a gas station, for instance. And there's some some interesting benefits to the vehicles, you know, charging at home overnight, waking up and having a fully charged vehicle. And uh, like I said, never having to go to those those gas stations. I think that is something that makes people feel good right now. And uh, they are actually, uh, if you drive one of these vehicles, you find that they're uh, it's quite a pleasure driving them. Okay, one one of your uh, published studies was uh, called the EV City Casebook. Uh, uh, you looked at uh, something like sixteen cities and regions uh, all over the world. Um, c- can you give us some highlights of of, of what's being done uh, to promote uh, electric vehicle adoption? Sure. So one of the things that we found, uh, we worked with a number of partners on this uh, International Energy Agency and the Electric Vehicles Initiative. Um, it it was interesting. It was an interesting process because we discovered. Uh, quite a lot of creative ways that cities around the world are, are trying to uh, encourage adoption of these vehicles. And uh, one of the big things that stands out is uh, cities like Berlin or here in the States, Los Angeles, are doing quite a lot of work in the area of uh, electrifying commercial and uh, public fleets. So, uh, you know, anything from, uh, it, you know, a state sedan to, to a, uh, a utility bucket truck. Um, some interesting ways of identifying new work opportunities as well. So if you think about a bucket truck that has to work um, typically during uh, daytime hours because of the noise associated with a, a diesel generator, you know, an electric bucket truck can go into neighborhoods uh, into the wee hours of the night without uh, causing any disturbance. Hmm. So of the 16 cities you looked at, does one stand out as being the most progressive? Um, I think what we discover is Berlin, and we don't want to single out any particular cities, but Berlin and Los Angeles look very strong right now, and many uh, cities in the U.S. look strong as well, such as Portland and New York City. Okay. So what about Boulder? We have a few public EV charging stations. Uh, uh, how do we stack up, and uh, is there anything you'd suggest that we do to push EVs? Sure. So Boulder has, a, uh, I think, a very interested public. If you, if you walk by or drive by the uh, Nissan lot uh, in North Boulder, you'll notice that there are quite a lot of Leafs on the lot. Uh, those are the electric vehicles that they offer. Um, there is a transportation plant, tra- transportation planner here in Boulder named Joe Castro is doing a lot of great work um, helping incentivize the adoption of these vehicles. And uh, likewise, in Denver, we're seeing um, a lot of great work as far as putting in the charging stations that are necessary to to uh, allow for public use of these vehicles or public charging of these vehicles and uh, really exploring the the kind of incentives that might encourage that adoption. Okay. Yeah, let's explore a bit more about the incentives. They they come in many forms. Uh, Some are financial, uh, some are are non-financial. What do you think works best? Where do you get the best best, uh, bang for the buck on that? Sure. In places like California, especially, the the HOV lane access has been huge. Um, You're now seeing that in California... um, they they are allowing access for future vehicles to, to the HOV lane only for uh, plug-in vehicles going forward. And, of course, if you already had a Prius, you'll be able to use it. But there are incentives like that. There are also interesting incentives about um, allowing sort of preferential or designated parking for electric vehicle charging. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, there's, a, there's a state incentive here in Colorado. We actually have the strongest or the, the largest... Uh, state tax credit for the purchase of an electric vehicle, and that's uh, $6,000. So, so how, if you, if you uh, balance the financial ones where you just get, uh, you know, the, the several thousand back versus, you know, I get to go in a, uh, in, in, in a lane, but it doesn't really cost the government any, anything, uh, how do those stack up? Which, which are more effective? You know, the, I think there needs to be additional research in the, in the area of how effective the financial incentives are. 
um, we have already heard from a number of uh, EV owners and drivers throughout the country that some of those non-financial things are are very important. And it might not even be, if you think about um, a retail store offering charging or even downtown parking for uh, city of Boulder, it might not be preferential parking so much as it is just having designated parking for an electric vehicle. Um, if you go to a place like Alfalfa's, you'll see that they have two uh, electric vehicle charging stations in the parking lot. And uh, it's difficult to actually enforce whether or not um, a, a non-electric vehicle can actually park in that space. So they're so having that designated spot is really important, I think, for the owners. Mm-hmm. Okay. In, in one of your reports, uh, you suggest uh, free electricity as an incentive. Uh, that, that one, to me, sounds like a great idea because, A, it wouldn't cost that much, and it would be a, a huge crowd pleaser to essentially be getting the equivalent of free gas. Uh, is anybody doing something like that? Oh, there are a number of uh, retailers that are doing it. Uh, Walgreens, Best Buy, um, some other companies around the country are now offering electric vehicle charging at their stores, um, and not, and they are not charging you for the charge, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, um, the re- I think really the uh, the idea there is to attract new customers and bring them in the store, and maybe they'll mill around the store a little longer than they typically would, so they can get that extra few miles charge. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the the uh, the near term and, uh, and and the long term. So in the next ten years, and then beyond that, are we going to see any? new paradigms uh, emerging from uh, from this technology? Well, right now, I think in the near term, we're actually seeing some positive signs as far as uptake of these vehicles. Um, certainly, there's a long way to go for them to be, uh, to really you know, cause a sort of, or create this sort of vision that we have in mind for um, vehicle electrification. In the long term, and this might not be as long term as uh, as you might think, uh, in the next 10 years, 5 to 10 years, you might see electric vehicles being used for you know, the purposes of uh, providing power back to a home or even to the larger grid, um, really acting as or serving as backup battery systems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in terms of the charging units, uh, we see pictures of you know them being neatly installed in garages. Uh, what about apartment dwellers? Are, are they being left in a, a gasoline ghetto? And that's it. That's a tough nut to crack. I think uh, this is something that many cities that we work with are uh, trying to solve. Um, many cities around the country are trying to figure out how to solve that problem of um, multi-unit dwellings, apartment apartment uh, tenants being able to charge. And I think in the near term, really, the solution is is workplace charging. Okay. All right. We just have about have about thirty seconds left. But uh, uh, what about jobs? Do do EVs are they going to play a role there? Um, in getting America back to work? Well, I think uh, any new industry is a positive thing for job growth. Um, you know, I, th- I, I forget this statistic. I might get it wrong, but I think it's uh, one in every seven jobs is at least peripherally connected with to the automotive industry. Um, and this is a new growth. Uh, this is a new industry within the, the automotive industry. And you're already seeing you know, companies like GE, um, smaller companies like Boulder Electric Vehicle creating new jobs. Okay, Ben, we're out of time, but uh, uh, can you tell our listeners how to get more information? Uh, please go to rmi.org. Okay, that was Ben Holland, manager of Project Get Ready at the Rocky Mountain Institute. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Tom. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. 
Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by Jim Pollan. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional sounds from YouTube user Dutch Trainman Series 22 and music from Craftwork and the Talking Heads. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast there through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom McKinnon.